You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Stephen T. Siegel. Um, his latest work is Genius from First Second Books, as well as some work in The Red Diary um, from Image, and a whole whack of other work. I was looking through it, and normally I try and read everything someone has done leading up to an interview, and I realize I probably couldn't do it for this interview. I made, a, I made a stab at it, but I read a fair amount. Um, other works include Solstice, uh, House of Secrets from Vertigo, um, The Crusades from Vertigo, uh, Primal Force from DC, <laughs> a, a brief, brief uh, one of their post-crossover series that didn't last too long, uh, Kafka from C- Caliber, originally from uh, good old Canadian publisher Renegade Press, uh, The Amazon... And I'm sure there's other things I'm forgetting. Um, That's quite a quite a list you've managed there. Yeah, as I said, I didn't get all of it read. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have any copies of Primal Force anymore, unfortunately. I don't think it lasted through one of my uh, my many comic purges over the years. But I always, I remember I was working in a comic store when it came out, so it was kind of like the perfect time for it, and I really enjoyed it at the time. So I do want to revisit at a certain point. Um, it was kind of an oddity among the other stuff that came out at that point, I seem to remember, among the other series. That's uh, that's kind of my career niche, oddity. I, just, I try to make sure that uh, whatever I did last time, I completely change course and alienate my audience for the next book. <laughs> uh, I don't know if uh, that one actually felt kind of in line with the other stuff you were doing. But just compared with the rest of the uh, the DC line at the time, um, it was a lot less flashy. It was, you know, I, not that I want to start off our conversation with Primal Force per se, but the <laughs> the funniest funniest thing about that book was that I had actually agreed to do an elemental kind of team of Firestorm and the Red Tornado and Nyad and Jason Woodrow, and I was well into that when somebody said, "Oh, you can't have Firestorm anymore." And uh, then other things, I was like, who wants Firestorm at this point in time? No one did. But somebody wanted it more than, than I deserved it, I guess. So I literally just said, I'm going to take the worst, most unknown characters DC has got and make a team out of them so that no one will come and knock it. And I assure you, no one did. <laughs> um, now, it's a kind of one of the things I'm really interested about is I was reading through Solstice and in your bio it says you went to school for astrophysics. Uh, aerospace. aerospace. Aerospace engineering. Oh, sorry. Why did I yeah. write astrophysics? Did it say know, the wrong it thing? Cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, I was looking at that, and it kind of feels like full circle to where you've come down with your latest book, in a way, of, like, science. and. Yeah. But yeah, it's not I think, something I think you... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think everything gets used eventually if you wait uh, long enough. I didn't finish in aerospace, by the way. I did three years and then changed to advertising literally because it was alphabetically right above aerospace, and I had to make a quick decision. So, um, Now, at this time, were you writing? Uh, I, I wrote in college. I wrote uh, Kafka in college. And uh, kind of on a dare, I literally had a friend who got me into comics. I was not a lifelong fan, but my best friend was a fan, and I started reading comics because he read comics. And uh, one of one of the things I would just say to him over and over is, oh, this is so dumb, I could have written this. And at some point he just said, well, then do it or shut up. And so I literally sent in proposals kind of on a dare, basically. And uh, Denis LeBaret at Renegade Press picked one up 
much to my shock and surprise. And then I suddenly had to learn how to write comics because I, despite my claims that I could have written a lot of things, turned out I didn't know anything about how to write a comic book and suddenly had to learn in a 40-day window before the first issue of Kafka was due. And did you know Stefano at that time when you started working on that? Or were you kind of just uh, paired so, up? Well, I was at the University of Colorado, and Stefano was at the University of Colorado. His parents taught uh, chemistry and Italian, I think. Uh, not at the same time, obviously, I, I assume. But uh, a friend of mine named Dayton Taylor, who is the guy who invented what is now affectionately known as the Matrix Tracking Freeze Shot, uh, he has a company called Time Track. He invented that camera in college. I saw that effect about 20 years before anybody else saw it in a movie. Uh, and he knew Stefano and he knew me, and I was like, I've got to find an artist quick. And he was like, I know exactly who you should use. And Dayton is the kind of guy who, if he says that, you have to believe because he's probably correct. And it, he introduced me to Stefano, and Denny liked Stefano's stuff, and that was that. And that was probably one of Stefano's first works, too, I'm presuming. Yeah, he had been doing uh, some kind of semi-pro level stuff in a book called Crimson Dreams, uh, which I think was out of Colorado, out of Denver. And this was his first kind of independent pro work. And actually this year, in two weeks, we are putting out a, a new hardcover edition of that book in color, but color is in quotes because we spent a lot of time and money coloring it into more black and white, basically, with a little bit of color. So it'll be full black and white color, if there is such a thing. Just like different tints, just gradients, or? Yeah, I've actually, I've been working on Kafka as a TV uh, show with Kenneth Branagh for a couple of years, and we envision it in this kind of black and white and color world, and so I thought it'd be nice to put a book out that kind of reflects what we're doing with that uh, project, so that's what we've done. And who's publishing that? Is that Image, or? Through Image, yeah, I'm, I'm part of Man of Action Studios, and everything we do is pretty much through image at this point. It must be odd to kind of revisit something after so many years in such a way. It is. I, I did have that instinct to Lucas everything, and actually I did a revisit about eight or ten years ago with Richard Starking, the Comicraft put out a redo of uh, the Kafka book, and at that time I was like, oh, I should correct this, I should fix that. And for this version, I actually went back to mostly what was in the original, uh, because I, I, you know, I think the book should be what it was when I did it. And that said, now it's in color, so I must be a hypocrite. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I, I'm always a stickler for kind of historical documentation and just liking to see where folks have come from. So I always appreciate that. I'm interested to see the visual change of how that looks. Um, well, I got another Italian, Marco Cinello, who did my kids' books, uh, Bachelor and Frankie Stein, and we did a, a book called Soul Kiss together, to color it. And I feel like having an Italian color and Italian artist worked. Like, he, he got that sensibility of, of kind of the rough brushstroke feel that Stefano inked with and did that in color, and Stefano, I think, was very happy with the result. And I do feel like the original is still out there, if that's the book you want to read. That book still exists. I have thousands of them in my garage. Uh, contact me. But uh, but I feel like this is more the version, you know, that I might have liked it to have been back then, but couldn't really manage at the time. Yeah, it was the it was the era of the black and whites. Indeed, that's kind of uh, a good testament of that time. Um, so that kind of sucked you into wanting to become a writer in comics. You know, I feel like I did want to be a writer. I always told people I'd be a teacher or an architect, but the very first thing I remember kind of completing ever on my own was a, a kind of a, I called it a novel. I think that's a grand term for basically a short story on notebook paper. But I wrote it in fourth grade. Uh, my teacher at the time, Mrs. Maxwell, would read to us every day, and she was reading a book called The Blue Man, and got to, like, chapter 26 of 28 or something at the end of the school year, and then the school year ended. And I had no idea how that book ended, and it just it stayed with me. I was so haunted by this creepy blue man, and what was he doing, and what was going on, and I just never knew the ending. It was very Lady or the Tiger. And that, more than anything, I think, made me want to start finishing stories. So I, I wasn't paying attention at the time, but as I think back, that was really, that was my first creative impetus was to try to finish that story in my head. Uh, 
like I'm really kind of fascinated by uh, the amount of writing you do because you also do stage as well, correct? Uh, yeah, got a theater company and and we do some animation through Man of Action and comic books through Image and I like to mix it up. Yeah, it's uh, do you kind of keep yourself in like a daily routine of writing and just kind of set hours or how does that work for you? Yeah, I'm a very structural kind of writer. I'm uh, both in my work and in the way that I work. So I do, I wake up every morning and try to sit down at my desk by 8.30 and just start writing. Uh, you know, doing animation, we have a lot of production meetings and voice records and animatic reviews, and that really has created its own businessy structure. So I kind of uh, set out by myself and created a new substructure where I go every Thursday to a Korean spa in L.A., and I work only on comic books and theater stuff at that time. I don't answer my phone. I don't check my email. And I've got, now I've got a cadre of people going. I think we have you know 12 to 15 people a week sometimes. And uh, the rule is that you can talk when we get there. You can talk at lunch. You can talk when we leave. And the rest of the day, you just have to sit and write all day. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting into that rigid structure. I think rigid structures help writers in general. They definitely help me. Uh, stay focused on things and, and get things completed. I was wondering about kind of your take on the process too, because I don't know, um, I was reading It's a Bird, and um, a lot of that is, the of the creative process really seems about process and kind of how do you get into that process. Um, yeah. And I guess part of that, um, like in my head, I'm wondering is about that kind of, that work for hire versus your personal work and kind of, you seem like there's a tension between the two. Uh, I think there, there is a tension between the two in that uh, for me on the work for hire stuff, when it was in comics, I always felt like there were things I would love to do and couldn't. I just, I always felt that push and pull and things. And when I got something like primal force where nobody cared, then I was like, oh, I can do whatever I want, and I always felt a little happier about that. When I was on the X-Men, when I was on Superman, you know, there were just mandates. Like, I hated Gambit because I'm, I was born in Mississippi, and I don't see anything Cajun about Gambit whatsoever. So I was like, I think I'll just kill him and leave him in Antarctica, which made me very happy. And then minutes later, I get a phone call saying, oh, Gambit's very popular. Bring him back, you know, in the next issue you're writing. And I was thinking... Well, I would never do that in a million years, but it's their book, and I need to do that. And how do I do that well, uh, as, as well as I can? And you know, when it's stuff that you create, and you're the sole driver, I think there are two ways you go. One is that you run off the rails because there's nobody keeping you in check, which I don't even think is a bad thing most of the time. Uh, or you really do what you have in mind. So I, I try to keep that in my head when I'm doing comics. Just a couple of things, like what do I have to say that I don't see anybody else saying or doing in comics, what is the artist I'm working with, how do I get something out of them I've never seen out of them before, uh, and then I, I do, at the end of all of that, say to myself, okay, I'm somebody reading this book, what do I get out of it, what's in it for me, uh, and that, when I write for the stage, that's all I think about is what is the audience thinking, what is the audience thinking, what is the audience thinking, because there's nothing worse than paying a lot of money for a stage show and leaving going, I don't know why I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm trying to cross-apply that to comics, but I also feel like when you write, or when I write for the audience for comics, it tends to water down what I'm good at. So I'm not sure why I can do it in one form and not so much the other, but there you go. Now, was House of Secrets your kind of first big breakthrough work? Uh, Kafka was nominated for an Eisner right out of the gate. Oh, so really? That, that didn't hurt. Uh, but we didn't win. We lost We lost to Watchmen. I even voted for Watchmen that year, and I was like, I'm not even voting for my own book. Is that a bad sign? Uh, so not not such a good thing. But that got a little attention on me, but I was at the time uh, still in college when that book came out. I did the Amazon with Tim Sale while I was also still in college, and then I went to grad school. And so when I started grad school, I kind of fell out of comics. I started teaching full-time right after grad school in, in university level, and only got back into comics around the time of Primal Force, which I started right at the same time as Sam and Mystery Theater. Oh, okay. Uh, and I did some Grendel somewhere in between in there, I guess, that I forgot and about. And you did but, the, uh, um, that one Grendel story with Hoshea Anderson. 
Yeah, that was the first Grendel Tales on the backside of uh, Grendel 40. Mm-hmm. I guess that must yeah, have come... I think that was when I was in grad school. So that was probably the last thing I wrote and the last thing I conceived writing. I also did a book called Jaguar Stories of Mike Allred while I was teaching college that never came out. So I guess that was my big fall off the cliff. Kamiko went bankrupt. I had gotten Mike to quit the Air Force to draw this book, and here he was out of a job and now out of another job when the company went under. And I was just like, this comics thing is bad news. i got to get away from this. So I did for a while. What brought you back um, to doing it then, to doing Primal Force and then being able to do uh, House of Secrets? Well, people always ask, uh, how do you get into comics? How do you get a job in comics? And I always say there's only two ways. One is you do something that's good so that people ask you to do something else. Uh, and the other way is that you meet the right people, and I don't mean this in a crass way, but you kiss ass, you suck up. It's a relationship business, and if you don't know people, things tend to not happen for you usually, mm-hmm. unless you're doing great work by yourself that you're putting out there. And so when I got back into comics, it literally was both of those things almost within a week of each other. Um, Matt Wagner was on Santa Mystery Theater. Shelley Roberg, now Bond, was uh, the assistant editor on that book, and Matt was going to quit. And so Shelley suggested maybe that Matt should get a co-writer. Matt remembered that I had done the Grendel story and you know liked that and liked the Amazon uh, and just asked if I'd be interested in co-writing with him. And at the same time, uh, James Robinson, who was at the time a good friend of mine, uh, asked why I wasn't doing any comics anymore and suggested I go to New York and meet some editors, and I did that. And that's how I got Primal Force. So I kind of started both of those jobs very close together. Yeah. And that was my my way back in. And after that, I was was teaching and writing comics. And within, I think, six months, I had to quit teaching because I had too many comics jobs going. And did you live in New York at that time? I've actually never lived in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, It's it's funny because it's a bird being semi-autobiographical. The parts everybody associates with being biographical are all the made-up stuff. And the parts people think are not real are the parts that happen. So a lot of people now think I live in New York because of that book. I I will go with that presumption as well. Um, yeah. I no, just flew out there for for a trip and met some people and flew back. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's been a while since I read the Seven Series, but I still remember like you really when you came on it, you, your voice was very present in it. Like it definitely you seem to have quite a hand in that. On mystery theater yeah you know here's the thing about that book the uh i love matt wagner death he's one of my favorite people but he and i in my mind are too much alike and so when he said do you want to co-write i said i think that's a really bad idea i think we're just going to butt heads get in each other's way i like what you're doing you should just keep doing it uh he was like well i'm but i'm not i'm going to leave if i don't get a co-writer he's like why don't you fly up to portland and let's just talk about it and i was like oh sounds like a terrible idea but i agreed to fly up and at least talk to him because as i said i like him so i got to his house i walked in he's like hey i'm gonna cook us some dinner here hold this and he hands me his infant child and leaves and i'm like (laughs) what do i do with this i don't know what to do with a baby i've never been to matt's house he i've only been here like 10 minutes he's gone what's good and the baby starts crying and you know it's like all this chaos and he came back and he's like keep holding the baby and he cooks this meal that was amazing he's a really good chef and by the time we were done eating dinner, we were already into the work. Like, we didn't talk about the work. We didn't have a discussion as to whether we would do it or not. He just tricked me with a baby and a meal into just getting into the process of it. And, and that was that. We never looked back. It just really worked well. And I felt like it was a blend of both. And every time Matt's year would come up, he'd be like, well, now I am quitting and you can just do this. I would just beg, beg, beg him to stay. Uh, and I, you know, I kept him on in various ways, and eventually he left. But... Uh, I felt like my job was just to keep him there as long as I could. And then you did, what, like a dozen issues, Lonesome? Yeah, he did a dozen without me, so I did a dozen without him, and then they canceled it uh, mid-storyline and asked me to wrap it up, and I said, absolutely not. So I just left it. I wrote it in such a way that it would end in mid-storyline intentionally. I thought that was a, <laughs> both a big F.U. and also a, a kind of elegant way to go. <laughs> Um, now, when did you get connected with uh, Teddy Christensen? 
So Teddy did uh, a Grendel run with James Robinson, and I met him mm-hmm. at the San Diego Comic-Con the year that that came out, Four Devils, One Hell. And to hear Teddy tell it, which I still I can't quite believe this is true, but he said that in all the noise of the Comic-Con, that I was this calm center of things, that every time he saw me, I just looked calm, which I can't imagine, but I guess it might have been true at some time. Uh, and so he just he felt like I was a pleasant person, and Teddy's one of the nicest people alive, along with Guy Davis, by the way. Uh, and uh, I just said, you know, I'd love to work with you. And we started talking, and he likes experimentation. I love experimentation. So we kind of crafted House of Secrets to be an experimental home for us for a while. Now, lo- reading a whole whack of your work at once, it seems like secrets are kind of a reoccurring theme, even outside of House of Secrets. Yeah, or maybe it's not secrets. I'm I'm obsessed with uh, with this thing called the Johari Window, which is about what you know about yourself versus what other people know, and what other people know about you versus what you know. And I've, I really mind that for a lot. I think I think the idea that self is this construction really arrests me. And you know, I I I've had friends, really good friends, who are no longer friends, who I felt I knew very well, and then one or two events occur and you realize, oh, I didn't know them at all. I knew a construction they gave to me and they constructed it very well and I accepted it, but it was theirs to take away. Or life events happen and you become a different person because you weren't aware of something inside of you. And I think that that I, I really am interested in that and I think that threads through a lot of my work. My dad is also a huge conspiracy theorist and so he always had this other level of story to things, you know, the Colorado fires are going on and he lives out there. He's already got like this arson conspiracy paranoid construct about it, which I love, you know, it's very inventive. It's probably not true, but who knows? Uh, and so that kind of secrecy has been in my head for as long as I've been alive. It's just kind of the underlying stories and everything. Yeah. There's always some secret, some secret truth you don't know. Were you reading a lot of experimental comics, um, at the time? Because you're saying you're into experimenting. Was that something yourself you were yeah, getting into? Yeah, I read a lot of experimental writing, but I don't... Uh, there's not a lot of experimental writing in comics. There's some, but not much. And a lot of times it's so uh, obscure that you go, what? I don't even know what happened there. So most of what I read is kind of long-form poetry of the 60s and 70s. I like that. I'm very into kind of minimalist opera. I sat through Einstein on the Beach four hours and 20 minutes of it without getting up once and I was entertained the whole time. You know, I laughed maniacally watching Black Rider, uh, which is the Tom Waits, Robert Wilson, uh, uh, I forgot the other. Burroughs. Burroughs, William Burroughs piece. You know, and everybody else was kind of bored or leaving and I was just laughing head off along with my wife thinking, oh, comedy, you know. So I'm, I'm kind of attuned to, I really love looking at what people do in other forms and trying to import that. I think when you import comics to comics, you get photocopy of other people's work. And, you know, there's a lot of that that's very in vogue right now. And I just, I'm so bored by that. It's well executed and more power to people who love it. But I just think things are stronger when you bring in outside DNA and mix it in the pool. Um, I noticed, I think you've a couple of times quoted John Cage. Sure, and, and he could be a really interesting source for just kind of ideas of how to analyze things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, in my other life as a kind of theater person, I I coached speech team in college. That was one of the things I did, and I took uh, John Cage into the speech world because I was like, well, what's what could be better for speech than somebody not talking for a long time, you know? And it was it's definitely John Cage's brilliance to, to bring that up. But I liked importing it into this world of collegiate speech team and having somebody just stand there and let the ambient noise become, you know, the noise of the room and the communication because you can't not communicate with somebody in front of you. Uh, so I, I love that. I like I like that. And then once in a blue moon, in synthesizing other people's brilliance, I'll have a moment where I go, okay, this is something nobody's done in comics, and I just did it. Usually, people don't even notice what it was, that kind of thing, which is fine. Um, but that's that's what I'm going for. Is I want I want the semiotics of comics 
to do stuff they haven't done before. And that's why I like working with Teddy. I can just say to him, you know, there's a segment in the new book, Genius, uh, which is kind of about a lost Einstein theory. And I said to Teddy, I was like, you know, at some point we have to give what the theory is, but we have to give it in a way that it's unknowable to the average person. And I want to do that visually and, you know, here's some stuff I have in mind and bring whatever you have in mind. And he's the kind of guy who doesn't, he doesn't have to ask me a lot of questions. He loves that challenge, and he'll just do something. Uh, and I, I love working with Teddy that way. And House of Secrets was an incubator just to try to tell stories a lot of different ways, a lot of different narrative conceits, a lot of different structural conceits, color conceits. Just, you know, it's a bird. Teddy drew in 21 different styles. Mm-hmm. He loves a gauntlet like that, and I love that he'll do it. So you, in in that kind of development of styles, you don't give any kind of try this direction, try that direction? Oh, sure. No, I'll, uh, it's a bird. I would say, you know, I'm going to write this piece like an E.E. E. Cummings poem, and, you know, to the degree that you can envision art that looks like concrete poetry, which isn't really E.E. E. style, but, you know, there was definitely a, a sense of text on the page. Mm-hmm. Is there a line weight that, that approximates the same thing? Or I would say... There's a piece later in the book, and I was like, I would love for this to look like Russian constructivist posters or, you know, just whatever. And oftentimes I'll just say, what have you not done? You know, use a medium you've never worked in and show me something, and I'll write to you on that piece. Uh, I threw out a couple of pages of It's a Bird because Teddy had drawn some sketches, and I thought they looked so good that they just deserved to be in the book. And so I got rid of a couple of pages and wrote something new to, to serve something he had just done as a study for himself. Uh, but I, I think that give and take creates a cool energy for comics that, you know, sometimes they're a little navel-gazy and they don't they don't play that much. So I like to play a little bit now and then. So do you see uh, Genius as kind of an extension of the work that you guys have been doing together, like it all kind of weaves together in a way, or do you feel it's kind of separate in its own? I think it's, I think it's the next destination. I don't... I don't know that we have a plan, per se, other than to keep changing uh, as we work together. I just told Teddy years ago after House Feuds, I said, I just want to work with you until I'm dead, uh, if you'll agree to that. And he was like, oh, absolutely, which is a sweet thing to say, because I could go terrible at any moment. Uh, But now I feel like he's locked in. Uh, And so that it's just trying to always go somewhere new. So House of Secrets did a lot of things in its own way. You know, and then I did a little work with him on Solo, just trying to service what he wanted done. Uh, we did It's a Bird, lots of different styles, kind of a whole new way of looking at narrative for us. Uh, then, though, The Red Diary came along, and Teddy did that book completely by himself, uh, so much for having to work with me till he dies, I guess. And uh, I, was, I was infuriated, both because he didn't work with me, but also because it looked so good. Uh, but I couldn't read it because I had it in Danish. And so I just I said to him, I was like, Teddy, I really want to put this out in the U.S., but if we do it for image, I have to do something on it. That's kind of our agreement with them. And he was like, well, why don't you translate it? And I was like, why don't I? And then I realized, you know, I don't speak Danish uh, or French, which it was in. And so I thought, well, why would that stop me? Why can't I just translate it visually? I mean, he told a story with visual cues. I'm going to look at where the balloons are. I'm going to look at what the art looks like. And I'm just going to write the same amount of captions he's got. If I see a word that I know, I'm going to use that word, and I'm going to crack what this book is about. And I literally, you know, it wasn't gamesmanship. I literally tried to figure the book out from the cues that I had available, and then I did a, you know, apparently a terrible job because what I wrote had absolutely no similarity to the book he wrote. Uh, so he sent me his version of the script. I cleaned up that translation, and we published both. And, you know, you get two completely different narratives using the same set of sequential images, and I think that's a, a success, you know, whether you love one or neither or both. Uh, I think it's just cool that comics can support that, that, you know, two narratives could use the same images in very different ways. And uh, and Genius was back to, you know, a more formalistic, written in advance kind of mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're, we're working on a project now that's going to go way farther than Red Diary. You know, it's just, it's how can we push the bounds what can we do to each other <laughs> to make each other miserable and happy as we work? <laughs> um, the Red Diary I got really excited by, cause, and I'm really curious about how you did that process for yourself. I mean, 
there's a tradition of maybe with you know Stanley writing um, after people draw on things, but currently not so much. Um, so it's generally pretty unusual for someone to write with the art already there and that kind of context. And so for your, you, I'm wondering about how do you construct that story, um, doing this like thorough rereading with these visual cues. Well, I had I had looked at the book a lot, and but not with any intention of doing what we did to the book. Just I just flipped through it and be like, oh, this is so cool, and I wonder what it's about. And you know, I had some thoughts, but not really. I hadn't really made anything concrete about it. And when we decided to do the project, I quit looking at the book uh, because I wanted to create a system first. So I I decided that where Teddy had a caption, I would have a caption. Where Teddy had a balloon, I would have a balloon and roughly of the same length, and he changes colors of the captions, so that's two narrative viewpoints. I would have those two narrative viewpoints. Uh, you know, if I saw a word like Paris, I would use that word in the same place uh, if I could. And then I just started on page one, and I literally just tried to write forward based on my feel of my understanding of the story. Uh, and I did pretty well until there's a, a letter on, I don't know what page, 13 or 16 or something, and I got to that letter, and I was like, who is writing this letter? What? Why is there a letter here? And it just knocked me for a loop. So I decided I would go to the end of the book and just start doing the same thing that direction. So I really kind of wrote myself into a corner in that I got a beginning and an ending that interrelated, and then I had this middle, especially starting at this letter, and I was really I was stuck for a few weeks. Uh, and then eventually I just figured it out somehow. Uh the only thing I think I want to correct, if anybody cares, is that I, I used a thing that I call transliteration on the opening quotation for the book, because I feel like a quotation is always setting a, a theme for things, and I didn't want to pick a theme. I wanted a theme to be picked in a John Cageian sense by the universe for me. So I used this kind of process of trying to exact map words onto foreign words so that the theme would be randomized as opposed to selected. Uh, and some people think I did that for the whole book, which could be fun, but it might also drive me to an early grade. So I, I didn't do that. I, the theme was randomized, and then I tried to write using this kind of schemata that I developed for how I would do it. Uh, and there you go. Now, Teddy was working on this the same time as doing a Genius, or kind of... Well, it's <laughs> Genius took a very long time to get through. Mm -hmm. And uh, and one of the things we don't talk about is what else was Teddy working on that took it so long for us to get to genius. <laughs> so I would rather not comment on that and pretend <laughs> that no, Teddy was always just working on genius, and this book appeared via the stork one day. It's a, it's a lot harder as an artist to kind of wear those many hats as it is for a writer. Oh, well, and and. Teddy lives in Denmark where people are all very lovely and, you know, there's constant uh, lunches that can be had in outdoor cafes and literate people reading books and he has three adorable daughters and, you know, I'm sure there are no end of distractions to keep him from <laughs> me going, why isn't my thing done? Well, let's talk about genius. Um, kind of, uh, as I said, or you said, kind of the underlying character of the perceptive who they are and other people's perceptions of who they are. Um, one of the things you, you do in this, um, which I noticed in your other works, is also your protagonist has a very strong narrative voice. Um, <laughs> in House of Secrets, it's very obvious uh, who's telling the story. It's a bird. Very obvious who's telling the story. Um, and I'm wondering about yourself as a writer, how you insert yourself into the story. Um, do you see that voice as yours, or do you try and play off this voice as not being you, and how do you put yourself in there? I have to be very careful how I answer this question, because I, for It's a Bird, I was like, okay, well, this is mostly me. There's a lot of me in this. And then a lot of people who read it were like, well, the lead character is so unlikable and unsympathetic. And I was like, wow, that, but that's me. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be very cautious about saying that anything is me in the future, until I'm sure people like the character. Uh, no, the, the, 
the semi-autobiographical piece of It's a Bird we used again for genius, and the kind of larger-than-life figure, Superman last time, Einstein this time, were the only two kind of tropes that I wanted to play with again. And then I wanted to kind of divert a lot. So this one is based on or predicated upon something that's actually true in my family, which is that my wife's grandpa, Max, knew literally one of the greatest secrets of, of our times. Uh, and right at the end of his life, Lisa, my wife, uh, told me about this. And I was like, why are you telling this now? He's literally got a month to live. He had emphysema. And we went to stay with uh, Max and Grace, his wife, and I really, I was just obsessed with trying to get Max to tell me what he knew about this. I can't, I can't actually divulge to you what he knew about even, uh, but it's, it's uh, the analogy I like to use is if you knew for sure that Kennedy, whether Kennedy was a lone gunman or whether it was a conspiracy and there were multiple fires, Max knew something on that order of magnitude, if not much bigger. So I just became obsessed with trying to make him tell me. And he was a man who had taken an oath. He was a military man. And he was not going to violate that oath for anything. And I, you know, I argued with him on the, the world has a right to know. It's better for you know, all parties involved. If you take this knowledge to the grave, it's lost. I tried everything I could think of. And he would just smile at me and just shake his head and, you know, change the subject. And then I started to wonder as this went on if I actually wanted to know what he knew because it is the kind of thing that changes literally, as I say in genius, everything you know about everything you know. So I, I wondered about whether Max was doing me slash the world a favor by taking what he knew to the grave in some ways. And so that, that part of genius is what is real. Uh, but then I wanted to build a fictional world because Teddy loves biographies uh, and autobiographies. And I wanted a book that had that feel of a memoir, a biography, a really family story told from the point of view of the, the patriarch uh, so that both Teddy and I would have something that we were really interested in weaving through the book. Mm -hmm. And Teddy has children, and most of your stories don't have a lot of kids. Well, I guess It's a Bird has a lot of kids, but it's a little different, I think, with this. Yeah, I... That, that family aspect. Yeah, I, I had a pretty good family life growing up. Uh, I don't have kids of my own. The Huntingtons has been a factor in that, but it seems like that's now a non-issue. So, you know, I don't, I don't know where that will lead, hopefully to some kind of family unit for us. But my wife and I were both teachers, and we've always had kind of the cast-out kid, the kid living in his car, the kid who got kicked out of his house, the kid with the gambling problem, the whatever. We kind of take in those strays and try to put them back on path. So a lot of the the writing in the book are, you know, are not based on conversations I had, but I learned those kind of conversations from actual interactions with teenagers, uh, though not my own. And then, yeah, the, the Ted character is a little bit more me looking at Teddy's family and uh, applying some things to them for dramatic purposes, but kind of trying to get that family sense in there, again, because I thought he would relate to that and and understand it in a way that he could communicate visually, which I think he did brilliantly. Mm -hmm. It's It feels very different for him. Like, it's a lot uh, visually, like the greens in it, that kind of darker hue to the book. Yeah, I was, when I got the first 14 pages, I was like, oh, why, what is this? Because it really did not look at all like I had seen in my head. And I decided not to say anything about that because there's nothing wrong with it not looking like I saw in my head. Uh, and as the book came to a point of completion, it, it literally took me about 100 pages to understand where Teddy was going with the look of the book. Uh, and you understand that the, the palette is muted in two different ways, the grays and the greens, kind of for very specific reasons. And when color shows up, it has a massive impact. You know, and he really he thought very meta about the script and gave us color so it would have the maximum meaning in the story. And I think that was just a really terrific choice on his part, certainly nothing I suggested, uh, and just shows how great he is. Now tell me about Man of Action. Um, that's a group of you and a couple other writers? 
It's uh, myself, Joe Kelly, Joe Casey, and Duncan Rulo, who is both a writer and an artist. Uh, all comic book guys. We all met doing various X-Men books at the same time. I was on Uncanny, Joe was on X-Men, Joe Casey was on Cable, and Duncan was drawing X-Factor, I believe, or X-Force, one of those two. I think it was X-Factor. Uh, and Duncan and I did Alpha Flight together. We really liked each other. Some of us knew each other beforehand. Some of us met in that pressure cooker. But we really got along well, and we loved making up stories. Uh, in the case of Joe Kelly and I, we made up some great stories for the X-Men that then we were told we could do and then could not do. And we made up some new stories, and they were like, those are great. Start those. And we started them, and then they were like, okay, you can't do those either. So we realized we liked working together. We liked making stuff up. We just didn't like making stuff up under Marvel when it was in bankruptcy court because uh, it was just a rough time. All of those guys moved to Superman. I eventually moved to Superman, and again, it was right as the, the Brett Ratner version of the Superman movie was collapsing. And the day I was hired, literally, uh, we were told not to do anything that would draw attention to the books for the next year. And I thought, well, this is now the worst possible job on Earth. Uh, I should have read my own It's a Bird book, which I actually wrote before I did Superman comics, even though they came out, I think, the other way. Uh, but, uh, but again, we liked each other, and I, at some point, we just said, what if we had a company where we made stuff up together, but independently of these kind of corporate structures that drive us crazy? And that's mm -hmm. how Man of Action came to be. I was, I was thinking about your time at Marvel, and I read the, um, Sean Howe's Marvel, The Untold Storybook. Um, yeah. And I realized the time you were there was probably one of the oddest times where they were really hitting rock bottom and seemed to be continuous oh, yeah. turnover and that must have been a I want to say, don't was, say horrible it was, but it seemed pretty unusual it was horrible let's just say horrible but here's why I, I don't uh, begrudge anybody it's like it was a tough time there were a lot of market forces to bear I was on the most high profile book at the company you know, at a time when if that book didn't make all the right moves, the whole company could go under with the perception. So mm -hmm. I knew what I was getting myself into, but I also loved the X-Men. Like, that was the first comic I started collecting where I was like, oh, I love this book when I was a, a teenager. And to be on that book at that time was heartbreaking. Uh, it was just, you know, the it's, oh, all my dreams come true. And no, none of your dreams come true. And the worst parts of your job at full force. And even then, I was like, well, it is a job, and I've got to make this work. Uh, but just nothing I could do would keep Marvel from rewriting me. Like, I hate to be rewritten. I don't mind rewriting myself over and over, uh, but I don't like reading a book with my name on it and seeing words that I would not in a million years have coming out of a character's mouth. Then mm -hmm. that was par for the course on that book. And, you know, they, I did an issue that they... <laughs> ironically shuffled around the order of the pages nowadays i'd be like i'd do that myself uh and call it fun but at the time it was really frustrating uh and just you know storylines pulled mid storyline just maddening stuff sean howe actually got it all right in my time frame i was like yeah he should have called me though i could have given him even more hideous <laughs> uh, details it was uh and i read those recently um and i really get the feel like it just seems like through some schizophrenia to, to behind the oh, scenes yeah. in it. It's... Yeah, and no, I was signing some at a convention the other day, and I just, I mean, I, I sometimes write heavily, but I don't write like 60% of the page as word balloons ever. But that's what a lot of that looks like. Yeah. I think they're trying to revisit the Chris Claremont days of yore or something. They were, it's just a lot going on, yeah. like, mostly with people trying to save their jobs and save face and, you know, make sure nobody could call them and say, why weren't there more words on the page or, you know, whatever. Not not a good <laughs> atmosphere to work. Look, it looks like people are having a lot more fun now. I read Bendis' first couple of issues, and those were fun. Good for him. Yeah. Um, so what kind of other commercial stuff or kind of creative stuff have has come out of doing Man of Action. Um, you mentioned you're working on a Kafka thing with Branagh. Um, what are those things we would have seen? 
Well, I mean, Man of Action created Ben 10, which is, you know, like a $3 billion global behemoth that will not stop, apparently. And the uh, smartest deal we ever made was taking a cut of merchandise at the very beginning instead of something else that we had to give up. Uh, but that worked out pretty well because that's afforded us the ability to kind of really pick and choose jobs based on what we're interested in and what we'd like to do as opposed to what we have to do. It's how we are able to do comics uh, with kind of whoever we want and not worry about how they do so much in the short term and look at them more as long-run things. So uh, for the last couple of years, we've been doing Ultimate Spider-Man and Marvel's Avengers Assemble for Marvel. We executive produce those shows. We have a writing staff that we co-write all the episodes with that we do. I think the uh, Avengers and that we is... I think that's done up here too, isn't it? It's animated in Vancouver. Uh, I think it's Korea, but I, you know, don't don't quote me on anything because <laughs> I you all be wrong. But uh, but we took those shows just because we you know thought it would be fun to work on those characters, and it's it's great doing stuff for kids. I mean, when I say when I do theater or TV stuff, I'm looking at the audience. I have no problem looking at an Ultimate Spider-Man and going. And I am the guy a lot of times in the room who will be like, what's in it for a six-year-old in this story? You know, we're telling a great Spider-Man story, but what is in it for an eight-year-old boy or a seven-year-old girl? What are they going to care? And I like the challenge of trying to tell stories that will relate to an audience that I'm so far removed from. Uh, We have a good time with that. We're doing uh, an original property called Seven Seas with uh, Sam G. It's a Korean company that we've known for a long time and two French companies, Method and Zag. Uh, and we just started on that. And we do an Italian cartoon called Gormiti, uh, which the Italian partners we work with have been very just generous in letting us reinvent their world. That's been a lot of fun. Uh, and then we have a lot of film and TV projects going. We have, I think, three different features lined up with some great talent. Uh, we have a couple of TV shows, including the one I mentioned. And, you know, it's, it's really just finding enough time in the day to keep all those plates spinning, and, and what's next? I'm actually at a point where I've gotten a lot of my graphic novel stuff that's been in the pipeline for a long time done, and for the first time in years, I'm sitting here going, I get to start totally new projects that I haven't even thought about yet, and it's super exciting. I was wondering, it must be really nice that you're doing more strictly personal work, less work for higher comics, um, so you can allow what you're putting out there to kind of more reflect what you want than necessarily what editorial decree decides yeah it's it's so funny because i did kafka sitting in my dorm room uh and Michel, who is now my significant significant other and i did all the production by hand back in college and stefano drew it at his parents house and we had to do our own advertising and you know just kind of all cottage industry and now that i'm doing stuff for image i'm like oh i'm doing the exact same thing i was doing in college i just didn't know how good i had it you know at the time it's, it's like, i got to work for big publishers. And, uh, and the truth is, it's kind of fun to get back and just do it all yourself and go, I want this kind of logo. I want this kind of cover. I'm going to use this colored paper uh, and be able to make those those choices. A lot of hard work, but it's fun. Uh, that said, First Second has also been a delight. I mean, they couldn't be... I hadn't done a book for a book publisher with a capital B, capital P before. Mm-hmm. And it's been amazing. I mean, that... I've had Genius printed since, I think, December. You know, and it doesn't come out until July, and it's already out for review everywhere. And uh, just amazing work that they do, and the way they do work has been a real eye-opener. I know they've been pretty excited about the book. I interviewed Mark, the publisher, like five years ago, and um, he listed your book as, like, one of the ones he's really excited about coming out. Well, Mark Siegel was so supportive about this book because... The truth is it took so long to do that it should have been canceled. And I think it almost was once or twice, uh, just because it was on the books too long for Mm -hmm. for McMillan Publishing. And Mark, both times that it was, you know, really going to get an axe, kind of held it together and kept the vision for the book. And we really have him to thank for making sure that it got to come out at all. But that said, I I hope that the, the work is strong enough that they don't regret it. I'm sure. I, I enjoyed it, and it's uh, it's really interesting to see where you guys have come um, and where you've come from to this. It's uh, probably the strongest work the two of you have done together. 
so far. Well, thanks. We're uh, we're gonna keep pushing and try to do something stronger and stronger. Who knows? More timely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, timely is tricky though, because I I if I go to a convention, I tend to move as many copies of Kafka, which is my first book, as I do of my new book. I think we're entering kind of a new age of consumption where it is about the, the creator that you like and you kind of mine their whole catalog when you find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I love timely stuff and I like stuff that's commenting on, you know, the here and now, but I do find that I'm trying to think a little bit more, uh, oceanic about this stuff, if that's the word. And, and what will last 25 years in print or in digital or whatever that somebody will want to read later on and it still works for you. So, Definitely Genius was the first attempt to go, you know, what are some themes that are universal now that I hope will be universal a decade from now or mm-hmm. two decades from now? Uh, I'm definitely starting to think that way as, as digital keeps everything in print forever. And it's nice to hear that Kafka, like, folks are still into checking out these old black and whites. Um, you know, I have a certain affinity for a lot of these, the old black and white stuff. I get kind of obsessed with picking up a lot of it. So. There was a lot of great, great, uh, just experimental in all kinds of senses of the word, stuff that you just don't see. Like, I just was reorganizing my collection and pulled out Puma Blues, and I was like, I remember really liking this, but I don't think I understood a word of it. So I'm going to read that again, you know, in the coming weeks. Uh, but I, just, I got a charge. I was like, where's a book like this right now? I don't know. Yeah. You know I read uh, Michael Zuli's book last year, uh, the symbolist thing that he did, and it was really interesting. You know, again, I'm not even sure I followed all of it, but I didn't care. I really liked the ride, uh, and I'm sure it will spark in me in the future. I, when I saw 400 Blows for the first time, I was like, what a crappy movie. Who cares about that? And literally two years later, that movie just exploded in my head, and I got it. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm so dumb. It took me two years to process that thing. Uh, but I like I like stuff like that, and I yeah some of those black and white books. You're Ted McKeever of the time, and you know I loved uh, Silent Invasion back in the day, and just I wish people would just you know what people are doing now. I'm I'm being a hypocrite. There's a lot of mm-hmm. crazy good work out right now. It's just the mainstream is letting me down. That's all. That's okay. You're to admit you have some good. Uh, there's some good books coming out of there. So, um, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Steve. Oh, thank you. I can't believe time flew by for me. For the audience, I can't vouch. I hope it wasn't too boring, but uh, you must be asking good questions or I must talk too much. Grandmama sleeping 
breast here come creeping. Gonna heat it up. Gonna heat it up. Gonna Grandmama sleeping. A breast here come creeping. Gonna heat it up. Gonna heat it up. And when do we go? 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 Red fair little earth. Red fair little earth. Red fair little earth. Red fair little earth. To its fields down the river. Oh yeah. Down the night, down the river. Get your coat.